Welcome to Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. Something is happening in social media. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever tried to explain Instagram to somebody of an older generation, maybe a parent or a coworker, and you've found that even if you could get them to create an account, that they only passively consume content, they never actually create it and become a part of the community? Do you find that now maybe you're that person on TikTok? You can enjoy the content and get a good laugh, but you just don't know what you're supposed to upload. Have you on social media found your own subgroups, your niche communities, your subcultures? Have you become literate in the specific languages and aesthetics of those tribes? Do you somehow just know to read between the lines of a post? Or when you see a post that you don't fully understand, do you know that there's something more there that you're not privy to? As a brand, are you tapped into all the secret languages and symbols of your space that have started to evolve past their beginnings? We are leaving the current age of social media and entering a new one. Our symbols and our languages are changing. And anytime a new age is born, the rules get harder. The audience becomes more discerning. And all of us, people, brands, identities, we're separated into those that move ahead and those that are left behind. The question here is, what is this new age that we're walking into? You know, there's always been certain symbols and certain things in society that you just kind of look at and you immediately know who you're dealing with. This is Erin Weinger. She's a journalist, an author, and a strategist who's worked at places like the LA Times, The Hollywood Reporter, and Vogue Australia. She's also co-authored some pretty influential books with huge online influencers like Ami Song, and she has a new book coming out with Tracy Cunningham. She's currently vice president of social editorial at Sony Pictures Television, where she's in charge of the overall brand story and communicating it to the Sony Pictures global audience. I talked to her about the symbols we see everywhere on social. Symbols like millennial pink and Gen Z yellow. The Visco girl, which I just recently learned is not pronounced VSCO. Normcore, the hype beast, the basic bitch, hot dog legs. Wellness shots in bathtubs or saunas. Whether there's flash or not, using native filters or filter apps. Our camera angles. Certainly emoji is their own language. All the signals that can be caught in the subtext of the decisions that we make on social. These symbols... Where do they come from, and how do we know them? It's a it's a really interesting question. I think that you know there's always been certain symbols and certain things in society that you just kind of look at and you immediately know who you're dealing with, why you're dealing with it, the brand associated with it. But I think on social media, it's been super interesting to watch these things because it, you you kind of have nine squares to show who you are. That's your business. So I think that if you are building a brand or you are building your own brand or your own persona, that flash is going to show people, hey, I'm kind of cool. I know how to wash out a photo. Yeah. Or, the you know, it's it's I was explaining to somebody who is not on social media the difference. But if you had two restaurants, you know, and you have your nine squares to truly communicate whether or not this is a place that is going to give you social currency if you tag it or not. And so I think that, you know, all of these symbols, I don't even think that they've come up purposely, quite honestly. I think that, you know, just by nature of Instagram and social media, a lot of things kind of bleed into each other. And a lot, you know, we don't even really know why we post the things we do and where they come from. They've just kind of started to become 
symbols unwittingly because, you know, an influencer might post using a certain look, a certain pose, a certain washed out background. And now you have a hundred thousand other people doing it. And then their followers are doing it. And so it just kind of snowballs into something that is meaningful without trying. So I think that trends are being formed by influencers, by media companies, by brands, by restaurants, by all of these people without really even trying. And they become a symbol of this is cool or this is not. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting too is I feel like those nine squares have become real effective shorthand for what a brand is about because... Uh, you know, we do so much brand research for competitors, for our clients, um, even, even user research. And the fastest, most effective way for me to understand what a brand or a person is about is to just follow their Instagram. That's just the first thing I do. And I learn more by reading between the lines with those images than I do with anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, I think it it really is a curated glimpse into somebody's mind. How are they thinking? What are they choosing to portray to the world? What message do they want to send? And I think it goes that way, whether you're a brand, whether you're an individual, whether you're a media company, a publication, you have to constantly be thinking about, even if you're not thinking about it, you are thinking about it. What am I portraying in my grid? Yeah. What is the first thing people are going to think about me when they look at those squares? Yeah. So you come from the world of media, right? So you come from like traditional publishing, yep. like big publishers. What you're describing in, in terms of how the language evolves in social versus the language that has evolved, let's say in fashion, which is, you know, some of the publications Absolutely. you've worked at is really different because in fashion, you had gatekeepers, you had people who set trends. I remember there was a time, I remember being in grad school and this woman came in to give a talk about being a trend forecaster. And I was like, damn, I want that job. And it became irrelevant by the time I graduated. Yep. Grad school is two years, by the way. Like that's how quickly trend forecasting meant nothing. And people still write about how, there's no point because trends come and go so fast. It, you, it's hard to even tell if things are trends. They can spread like wildfire and then just die. And then there are things that spread their trends that have way more lasting power that reflect something deeper in like, you know, the cultural zeitgeist or, you know, whatever people are talking about or, or feeling or ready to embrace. But what you're seeing is happening on social because it's not gatekeepers in a select few that are making these decisions. It's almost by accident, it seems, and these patterns emerge over time. And I think that is a lot of it. And I think that there are still a lot of traditional checks and balances in place where there are gatekeepers trying to mm-hmm. be gatekeepers mm-hmm. and it's not working. I think that, you know, the nature of social media, and I have found this very much just by nature of some of the places I've worked, the red tape that traditional organizations try to hold their social media to it doesn't really work because mm-hmm. you can't plan for trends on social media. You can't, you don't know what's going to catch on. Who would have thought that an egg would be, you know, cause a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, there are things that happen that there are no rhyme or there's, there's no rhyme or reason for a lot of the stuff that happens on the flip side. There is a ton of rhyme and reason for so many of these things that happen. So I think that it really is about finding that balance of how do you kind of be fast and loose and let go a little bit and have that, intimate connection with your audience and your mission and your goal to be able to just kind of relax and put your authenticity forward in a way that just lets people who are meant to find you, find you and connect with you. I don't know where I'm going with this, but authenticity, (laughs) I feel like. I hate that word. Yeah. (laughs) We all hate that word. (laughs) We all hate that word. Why, why do we hate it? 
because this, the sheer nature of the overuse of it, I think, has become unauthentic. Yeah. Inauthentic. I said the wrong word. Inauthentic. I think that it used to, you know, a lot of the things, and, and this is another kind of, I don't want to say a downfall of social media, but, you know, this idea of, oh, everyone has to be authentic. Mm-hmm. People are trying so hard to be authentic that they're not actually asking themselves the questions of, well, who am I? And who is my, what is my brand? Oh, okay. You've hit on something really, really (laughs) smart here. So yeah, I would argue that authenticity isn't enough because I don't even know that people are interested in the entirety of a brand on social or the entirety of a person's life on social. They come to you for, to meet specific needs. If they need to be inspired, if they need to be educated, if they need to be directed, if they need to tap into something into some subculture, into understanding something that's otherwise inaccessible to them. People come to social looking for these kinds of, like, not currency, but like, this is this is a deliverable on social. This is what people need from you. I find that a lot of influencers or brands fail to understand that this isn't about what it is that you want to project, but a good place to start is what do you think people are thirsting after? Like, what is your audience looking for specifically? I I am actually surprised by how many people I encounter day to day in, you know, I work at Sony, within Sony, outside of Sony, brands, clients I've had, the publications I've worked for, that I, I am shocked at the number of people that do not start with what is my goal. Yeah, And I think that people just kind of, go. And that's great. But, you know, you have to start with a goal. And I think that one of within that goal, one of the things you have to account for is what am I giving to my audience? Who is my audience? Who specifically are these people? And it doesn't have to be one audience, but I don't think people really start with asking the questions yeah. to get the answers to allow them to actually cut through the noise on social. Right. And so I think that's a big part of being authentic. Again, it's going back to knowing who you are. Yeah. Who am I? What am I doing? And why am I here? Another thing while we're talking about authenticity that this is making me think of is authenticity requires you to take risks, right? So it's not enough to just reflect to people what they actually want on social, but you have to give them a vision of the future. I described this example in the past. I don't know which podcast episode it was on, but Chriselle Lim, for example, she has this whole future vision about what the future of being a working parent looks like, right? She's launching this co-working space. She comes from the world of fashion. Mm-hmm. She's a self-made fashion influencer, one of the OGs, like huge, has amazing collaborations. I think she just had a, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think she just had like a capsule collection with like Nordstrom. She has taken a risk. I think she's looked at her audience. She understands that they have matured with her over time. This is an older group. I mean, older by millennial standards, whatever you want to say. <laughs> They're having kids for the first time and they're navigating this space and they are trying to negotiate what it means to be a working mother, but also wanting to have the life that they had before they became a parent. And I might be projecting too much onto what this brand that she's creating is about, but the fact that I can make so many assumptions about what this new co-working space will be shows that she has done a really good job of creating an authentic brand that has taken a risk in painting a picture of the future. And that's the only risk that matters is risk that pushes us into the future. Absolutely. I think that she's really done that. Yeah. And I think it's really what you just hit on for me talking about that is also modern brands move. They evolve and they move and they're fluid and they don't stay the same. And I think, you know, if you thought, think about a working mom in the eighties, you go on maternity leave, you go back to your corporate office. You're not 
you're not evolving with, you know, the people around you. You're not, it, it's just a very interesting concept of how everybody does kind of have an audience now and they become you, you become them and you move together and you grow together and you create this living thing that is always evolving and always changing. And I don't think that, I don't think that that is something that's we've ever seen really happen before, even with, you know, Coca-Cola and Nintendo and all of the, you know, it's like you kind of stay the same and then your core group ages out mm -hmm. and then a new group comes in. And that's not how we think about it anymore. We don't think about the next generation. We think about our current audience and how we move with them. And I think that that's a really interesting thing that social has given to us. And that's allowed people to really stay true to who they are because you see all of these Chris Limbs of the world, the Lauren Conrads of the world, yeah. the Whitney Ports of the world, all of these women who, you know, who do really, they're, they're just them. They're just kind of living their life. Yeah. And they, they trust and take that risk that their audience comes to them because they too are living their life. And I think that, that that in itself is a new kind of risk that we haven't really seen probably since the rise of Instagram, I think, has really allowed us to have brands that evolve with us. Right. Okay, so you mentioned something interesting about your audience aging in and aging out and thinking about like new audiences or catering to your old audience. The thing about symbolism and new languages emerging in a space or in a platform is that you start to have multiple languages and multiple sets of symbols. So, I mean, I barely understood the VSCO girl. I think I only came across that because I was doing research, but I don't think I would have seen her or understood her or realized that she was sending secret signals in her look. Yeah. I don't even use VSCO, you know, and there's a whole tribe of young girls that do. Is I never know. Is it VSCO or Visco? Oh gosh. That just shows you. <laughs> I feel like it's Visco. I don't know. For Sorry. Sure. Okay, no, that's, okay. That shows you. No, it's fine. I I don't know. All right. So it's we okay. just made our point by me embarrassing myself. <laughs> well, I could be wrong too. So no, what, you're probably right. Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> so, you know, she has like a, like a very specific look. Yeah. And, and then you have other things like Anna Angelic. She was one of our interviewees on a previous podcast. She wrote an excellent piece about how if wellness and health are the new luxury. It's about having the resources to be able to take time out and unplug, but then you still have to prove that you're able to do that. So you still have to document it and show it somehow. And that's the weird tension in those, in those things. Like you can't just go to a spa and unplug. Like you still have to demonstrate it. You know, it's the whole picture. It didn't happen yeah. thing. Like that's why, but there's such a rash of like hot dog legs everywhere. Right. Which I've, I'm guilty of having taken those photos myself. I like, have a lot of hot dog legs. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you show hot dog legs to our parents, they're not going to understand all of the subtext that comes yeah. along with that. Yeah. So, you know, the bigger question here is like, how do we come to understand all this subtext? Is it because we're just around in like the ether? So we absorb like these, these subtle cues, or is it because somehow there's like a codified way of understanding these things? I think, yes. I think we understand these things because we are, if you are on Instagram scrolling through a feed, you are, just getting images all day long. You are inundated with messaging and images and, you know, videos. And again, it's, it's these trends that emerge. The more you see millennial pink, it wasn't millennial pink when it started. It was pink. Yeah. Pink was having a moment. Yeah. So, you know, one decor blogger posted it. Another blogger took a picture of it at a coffee shop. Architectural Digest picked it up and declared it a trend and posted all the photos of it. 
then all the designers who wish that they were featured at Architectural Digest posted, reposted what Arc Digest posted. And now it's millennial pink. Right. So it's the anatomy of a trend and how trends kind of bubble up. And so I think the subtext comes, you know, a, a lot of it still comes from it being anointed a thing. Yeah. And so I think that we, again, we are inundated with images. And I've had this conversation with a best friend of mine who's an interior decorator and she's an architectural designer and she works at a very, very prestigious firm that is featured in Architectural Digest and El Decor and, you know, Vogue Living and and all, all the shelter mags, all the bloggers want to pay attention to what is going on at this firm. She and I talk about where do interior trends come from? Because we all see the same things on Instagram. So are we making trends in the real world because we're seeing our inspiration kind of mashed together and we don't even know where it's coming from? Or are we getting trends from outside and bringing them to our social media because that is what we like? And I think the lines are a bit blurred. And I think especially when it comes in the fashion, the interior, the art, any creative space right now, it's the lines are kind of blurred. And I almost think that when I think of the future of social media and the future of creativity, I almost think we're going to have to, and we're we're starting to see this where a luxury, as you've mentioned, is unplugging. It is a luxury to be able to take a step away. And I think that that's something that is very much going to be vital to the future of creativity, where you really do take a step away because you are on vacation in Greece and you are genuinely interested in the architecture and the color of the terracotta and the food that you are eating, not because you need to document it, which obviously you will when you get home mm -hmm. or go back to your hotel that night, but because you have to absorb it because otherwise you have no creativity to give to what you do for a living. Right. And I think that's something that's really, I think about this a lot. I have a term that I let, that I have coined silver Lake beige <laughs> because everything feels very, and I know colors and, you know, there's a lot of color and texture in interiors right now. You know, it's a very creative process, obviously designing an interior, but thinking about silver Lake beige I say that because you walk down the street in Atwater Village, in Silver Lake, in Culver City, in any, any of the creative little hubs around LA, and every storefront kind of looks the same. They have the same aesthetic. They have this kind of beigey, sophisticated, plain, minimal, wood and macrame look that feels like it was birthed from Instagram. And mm. so my question is kind of always chicken or egg. Yeah. Where did it come from? Yeah. And so I think it's really interesting to think about the inspiration that we get from our feeds and how do you balance and reconcile your true passion and creativity and ideas? Are you getting them from Instagram? Are they starting on Instagram? Are we all looking, is everything we're doing all looking the same because we're all posting the same thing? without even realizing it. So you mentioned something about Arc Digest that I think I want to point it out because it's a it's a it's a real device that you can use in brand strategy and this idea of, you know, the fact that pink always existed but when Arc Digest named it millennial pink, the act of naming something gives you ownership over it. And then it becomes a lot easier for the idea to travel because so much is encapsulated in those words. Millennial pink holds a lot of meaning. There's a lot of 
subtext about feminism and returning to innocence and recoiling from like the ills of modern society and all that stuff. Silver Lake Beige, I think, is even more profound. Bravo. What, what, what can I say? <laughs> because honestly, if you if you're on the West Coast, you understand so all of the layers of meaning in what you just described. It's like you can watch Arrested De Development and enjoy it, or you can like watch Arrested Development as somebody who grew up in Orange County and like really feel it in your blood. Again, just layers of meaning. But, you know, that's something we, we, we talk to brands about sometimes is, you know, a lot of founders will come to us and they won't even realize that they have subconsciously created a, an idea or, or a brand or a company around something that's happening culturally that hasn't really been brought to the surface yet. Mm -hmm. They can they they just have an intuition about it. And what's great about our jobs is a lot of times we just bring that to the surface and we name it or we package it or we, you know, we put a bow on it and then it becomes a thing that is easily identifiable. It carries all that subtext. So it does this huge heavy lifting culturally. And then to be the one that or the brand that brings that that entire story to the collective consciousness, you know, that's adding value to culture, right? And that's pushing us forward. That's a lot of what branding is. And I think, you know, the, your Arc Digest example is a perfect um, demonstration of that. So do you see any other symbols or languages coming up? I mean, there are so many subcultures. I mean, there's like the whole, I didn't even mention like basic bitch and stuff like that. Like what are the things that you're seeing that are kind of top of mind for you that are interesting right now? Ooh, top of mind that are interesting. That's a very good question. I, I still think, you know, when I really think about the future of storytelling on social media, I do think that we're going to have to do a little bit better. I think that the public and, and the general audience is getting really bored. Okay. I think that there's a lot of noise to cut through. And I think about this every day at my job at Sony. How do we cut through noise to allow people to understand what the Sony brand is and that Sony is a you know, creator of premium television. Do I think that that can be done with kind of lowbrow viral videos? Quite frankly, I don't. I think that the era of being able to trick your audience into consuming is over. I think you have to do better. I still think when I think of how do you tell an actual story on social media, I look at things, for example, the New Yorker just did an amazing, amazing collaboration with an agency in New York where they built out user-generated caption contest platform on Instagram. The New York Public Library, they partnered with Mother, another agency in New York. And they oh, created, I know Mother. They've done great stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I love what they did. They did this Instagram story, novels come to life activation. And that's something I think is incredibly, incredibly interesting. I look at last year... There was a really incredible, and I know that this is a bit, uh, this can be a little bit polarizing because there are a lot of people who actually did not like this. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, but an Israeli tech investor, biotech investor, I believe, um, I could be wrong, but an Israeli billionaire and his daughter basically financed a feature film that they then spliced up into an Instagram story series about a Holocaust survivor or a Holocaust victim, I should say that they asked the question, what would it be like if somebody had social media during the Holocaust? They essentially created a 19, a late 1930s set. They showed what it would be like if this girl, very much in the vein of Anne Frank, she was a real, a real girl who sadly did not survive the Holocaust. They took her diaries. They took her story. 
they showed her life. They showed her life before. She was with her phone. She was with her friends. She was hanging out at home. She was going to get food. They showed what happens when the Nazis started to come through town and people didn't think it would happen to them. And they just kind of watched and it just, it progressed to the end. Obviously I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant because what's so wonderful about Instagram, you have all of these things that live there that are pretty putrid, but then you have this mechanism where there are seven or 800 million people who are potentially a captive audience to a message and a story and something like that for me, when, you know, you're reading reports in the newspapers of children who don't know what the Holocaust is And every year that number only grows because it's not being taught. And here is a way to modernize a story and make it accessible for a different audience who knows how to consume content on this medium. And so I think that it's almost like you have to be platform agnostic Mm -hmm. and think about what's the story, you know, slice it up, cut it up, figure out where, where is the, what's my story? Where's the audience? So you feel starting with a story is the most important part. I think it's absolutely vital. You yeah. cannot do anything without starting with a story. And I think that that is what, when I think about what I, where I see the future of social media going, especially in an election year, especially when there is a lot of stuff going on and a lot of anger surrounding the platforms on kind of where the world has ended up, largely because of what the platforms have allowed us to do. I think that we have to do better. So I I look at really premium storytelling, the kind of storytelling that we've all been used to and our parents were used to and their parents were used to, you know, sitting and listening around the radio. Look at the golden age of podcasting. Look at, you know, long form and some of the beautiful stories that are coming out in the documentary space. And, you know, I just think that people are going to hold themselves and brands are going to start holding themselves to a higher standard. Even with content marketing, um, when you look at I think what REI, the outdoor company just did, they got rid of their catalog and they launched a magazine. It is an awesome magazine. They have interviews, they have celebrity profiles, they have hiking guides, they have gear guides, and you can shop it, obviously. But it so resonates with their consumer and it's so on brand for their consumer. I think translating strategy like that into social media and portraying storytelling that connects to your consumer is just, it's going to get... Brands are going to, I think, invest more heavily in that. And there will be more thought given into how you use that across all of your platforms, across your site, across your social, across your newsletter. So you get the investment out of it um, because it's not, you know, it's not always cheap to create premium storytelling. That's not to say I think the TikToks of the world are going away. I think there's still room for, you know, viral dance videos and throwing American cheese slices at the wall and having it become a cultural moment. But maybe this is more wishful thinking than a trend I think we're going to see. But I don't think it's important for every brand to jump on every bandwagon. I think it's really important for brands to think about what's the story, what's the goal, and what's actually the right thing to do here. And speaking of the goal, I think the thing that a lot of companies, especially larger companies, kind of, it's a vital mistake that they make consistently. It's that they see social as a sales channel. Or as a profit center. Yes. It's none of those things. If you're talking about storytelling, like you really have to commit to the idea that totally. like, this is a long-term investment in creating a halo effect over the brand that will encourage loyalty, encourage, you know, recall, recognition. That's a very, very interesting point. I think, you know, for me and my work, I encounter executives all day long 
where I have to kind of explain how a brand story is exactly that, what you just said. It is an investment. It, it, it is investing in the future of your business. It is investing in the future of your audience. It is showing that you believe in your audience enough that they will evolve with you and they will continue to consume your product or convert into whatever metric you need them to convert into. And I think that I have a different perspective, obviously, because I don't work in a startup and I am not around a lot of people who are making purchasing decisions, shall we say, uh, who maybe have been as immersed in all of this as we are currently. So there's a lot of education and there's a lot of explaining and there's a lot of talking about why investing or, or why this is an investment, why I don't like really the term content marketing, you know, it's really communities of interest. Mm. How do you build a community of interest and how is that an investment for your business? Wow. Even just using those words, like exchanging those words immediately makes you think of approaching it very differently. Absolutely. But that's it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be one group. It's who are my tribes? And I think thinking back to symbolism, that's really what it is. It's tribes. It's figuring out who are my people. And social media communicates that on a visual with, with a visual language. Yeah. And I think that's very much that's kind of the heart and soul of the story. How do I visually communicate who my people are and who I am so my people find me? Yeah, absolutely. Building a brand story is like just making an online dating profile. <laughs> right. It's easy. Right. Okay. So you have a really interesting history in the influencer space. You've actually worked with some amazing influencers um, as a co-author coming from your publishing world. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I co-wrote Ami Song's, uh, both of her books. Capture Your Style, which really was all about Instagram. That was the first real Instagram book that just blew up. It did well. We were we were very happy with it. <laughs> um, it did very well. And she, you know, she has such an interesting perspective. Her blog is 11 years old. So, you know, ancient and as far as uh, bloggers go and influencers go. And she's somebody who very much fell into it accidentally, truly. And, you know, working with her and learning about her story and her journey and how she built a, to say that she has built a following does not do what she's done justice. We would be in a coffee shop in LA working on the book. She would post a picture of something and the next day we'd come back and there would be a line of people waiting to see her. So the, how she has done it. And again, I know we don't like this word, but authenticity thinking about, she is somebody who it's who, who she's just herself. Yeah. She's, eating her food. She loves her fancy clothes. She talks about her anxieties and her fears I mean, she's and just, her body she's image. Just, she, I always equate when you get to just kind of be and just be you as she's just breathing. She's breathing and documenting it along the way. And I think she does it in a way that I don't want to say she does it without trying because it's a lot of work and it takes a big team of people to keep her running. But she really does it in a way that, I mean, it's, it's her, she breathes. Yeah. She enjoys it to the point where she keeps it going. And I think that it was a really good education for me to get a glimpse into the whole inf influencer ecosystem because quite frankly she's she's the best. She's the biggest and the best. So, I learned kind of from the biggest and the best and working with her, you know, DBA with her management company uh when I was at Vogue Australia working very closely with our 
We had our own in-house influencer team, essentially. So we had a blogger cohort that we worked with and we worked on branded content with them. So very interesting glimpse into very different sides of the coin from the management aspect to the talent aspect to the brand aspect and how brands want to work with influencers. So it's been really interesting for me to kind of see all sides of the industry. Okay. So you have a really, like you have a a leg in all worlds, publishing, social media, influencing, now in actual straight traditional media as well. So all these things that we've discussed, if we consider how influencers have been a part of and actually created this social media frontier, if we describe this as social media and influencing 1.0, what does influencer 2.0 look like? You know, influencer 1.0 feels very billboardy. I think Influencer 2.0, again, when you think about kind of what we were talking about, what we've talked about throughout this conversation about brands have to do better, influencers have to do better. It's not going to be enough anymore to just hold a, you know, a package of diet tea and make $500,000. I mean, for some people, it will. Listen, that's always going to be there. But I think if you really are thinking about, again, what is my goal? If you are trying to sell something... How do you actually connect? How do you get your product into the lexicon of Millennial Pink, into the lexicon of away luggage, where you take a picture of your luggage and you just got yourself into an exclusive little coven of people who are travelers? And that in itself is a social currency because you can hop on a plane and see the world. So I think that really, again, thinking about doing better. To me, thinking about some of the things that are you know, air quote quotes I'm giving right now, trending in the world. I think that intelligence is really the direction that I see things going. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. Maybe that's me uh, praying every night. (laughs) But you think about poetry and how, you know, poetry is so big right now. And Well, poetry is big now because of Instagram. It's poetry. Poetry. Had, it's poetry's been big since my God. No, but poetry has had a huge revival among young millennials yes. and, and Gen Z because of Instagram. And that's why you have people like Rupi Kaur Gill and RH Sin and a whole number of other people that I mean, if you look at it, you kind of wonder, are they creating poetry for Instagram? It's very readable on Instagram. The answer is probably yes. Mm-hmm. There's probably all kinds of academics uh, rolling over somewhere right now. Oh, I'm, and that's, <laughs> I, I truly don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's very possible that these ones surface to the top because they wrote poetry that works really well totally. on Instagram. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's amazing poetry. I mean, Rupi Gill, she's she's selling out amphitheaters yeah. around the world and doing this these spoken word performances that yeah. are just like changing people's lives. Absolutely. And, you know, if you want to do the tattoo test... People are getting tattoos of these writers' poems on their bodies. Like, that's the brand pinnacle, right? Poetry coming back into popularity, independent bookstores Mm -hmm. having such an amazing, it is such a, it's like a golden age of independent bookstores because of Instagram. For me, that's something that I think is beautiful. When I first moved to Australia, that was something that I noticed in 2015. I was like, there are people buying books here. Because there is no Amazon. Mm -hmm. And coming home now, a few years later, I'm like, oh, 
people are buying books here too. Part of that too is because also you can, there's been writing about this, that books are having a resurgence because it's another part of that wellness and social currency that shows that I have the time to read a book. Also, books are being repackaged for social, you know, we already know that like makeup brands and even R&D for makeup and food and even real estate is all being repackaged for social. Books are another one. So, you know, book designers have this new directive where they have to create Instagrammable cover art in order for a book to sell. And um, it was Faber and Faber, I believe they had a designer who said that they are specifically creating for Instagram. A great example of this was Sally Rooney's book, Normal People, which went through the roof. Ironically, it, I read somewhere like her characters would hate the fact that they were even part of like, an, I'll do the, the air quotes now of a Instagram cool culture. But, you know, this was all pretty deliberate. It is like influencing 1.0 is pretty sophisticated. And what you're talking about, from what I'm hearing is the next level has to kind of evoke some sort of, when you say connection, that to me sounds like emotional response, right? Absolutely. And I think emotional response, you know, that's, that's almost a given. You have to do something that will make somebody feel. And that's something that in our day and age is not always the easiest thing to do. But I think when it, you know, bringing it back to kind of this concept of intelligence being a social currency, that to me feels very real. And it feels very, yes, you want to take a picture of Sally Rooney's books because, oh, look, you're a reader, you're a reader, you're intelligent, you know what's going on. And if you look at some of the book jackets that are really making waves right now, they're all throwbacks. Like I, I feel like the fonts even that you look at remind me of a first edition Catcher in the Rye. Like they're all vintage inspired fonts from a different time. So I do think there, there are these trends emerging of we're going back in time a little bit to when there was no Instagram. So it's almost bringing this intelligence and this analog look and feel to life and displaying it digitally. And I think that to me feels like a very big direction that influencing is going. How do you, how do you almost bring your persona offline? How do you build a following online to allow you to convert into something offline, whether that be product or conferences, talks, books? That to me feels like the future. And I mean, it's not the future, it's happening. But I think the intelligence thing reading and poetry and getting, you know, going back to school for another degree and learning financial literacy. I think these are all the trends that we're going to just start seeing more and more of. Instead of an influencer selling lipstick, we're going to see the lipstick company, you know, the beauty brand trying to hit up the financial advisor who happens to have a big following on Instagram because she's teaching women how to do their taxes. So I think that that to me feels like a big direction that things are moving. This new intelligence, this new marker of status that people are looking to project about themselves, is a luxury in and of itself. It's clear to someone in this space like Aaron that influence and the very act of influencing others is evolving into something a lot more sophisticated. And this, in turn, will propagate the next generation of trends that every brand needs to be paying attention to. What I wanted to know now was, what does this look like for influencers themselves and the consumers that they're touching? Freedom is the new wealth. And in the spaces that I'm in, which I'm kind of in two, so I'm in wellness and then I'm also in the travel exploration space, you see that more and more. This is Dr. Therese Moscardo. She's a licensed clinical psychologist here in L.A. and founder of the wellness community Exploring Therapy. 
She's also an influencer. And if you follow her on Instagram, you'll see that Dr. Moscardo has a very specific brand. She's in a unique position to talk about the cultural shifts happening in social because she's both in the practice of mental health and in the practice of building a social media brand. I'm fascinated by what choices people are making now compared to generations before us. One of the things I recently read in an article is that millennials are choosing more and more to pick jobs that have personal fulfillment and meaning to them compared to jobs that pay them a lot of money. And I feel like our parents' generation would have never done that. Yeah. We actually talked about this recently where that's something that employers have to start thinking about because all these benefits packages and compensation, like all the things that were the levers that you would push and pull Mm -hmm. to attract a workforce don't really work anymore. People are looking for meaning in the companies that they work for, which I would argue actually makes the case for branding for a company because Mm -hmm. you have to convey that your brand is more than a job. It's really like about some ideal or some belief or some value, the things I talk about all the time when it comes to brand strategy, that people are willing to kind of like, they understand that their job is, they're they're giving their lives to their jobs. Yes, it's so much less transactional than it used to be. And it's so much more nuanced because people don't just want a company that pays them well and has great benefits. They want a company that they get a sense cares about them, cares about their well-being. And in the digital nomad world, right, where people are increasingly going into remote work, they want to know that their company offers them that type of flexibility. So that's one of the things companies are offering is more opportunities to work outside of the office because they know that those workers are happier and healthier and more productive. Right. So you're a digital nomad. Yes. You have your own business, (laughs) businesses, I should say. So Describe exploring therapy to me because it's growing and it, it encompasses so many things. But tell me, how would you describe it? Exploring therapy is a wellness community designed to help people build a life they don't need a vacation from. Mm-hmm. So we have conversations that cover a wide range of things. It's not just about wellness. It's not just about mental health and therapy in a box, but we really talk about lifestyle. We talk about how you spend your time, who you spend your time with building community, things that are fulfilling and personally meaningful. And our goal is that we would help people live lives that are more healthy, free, and connected. So would you call this a lifestyle brand? I guess you could say that it is, Uh although I didn't intentionally start it that way. Why do you hesitate? When I think of lifestyle brands, a lot of times I think of an individual Mm -hmm. and an individual who is showing off those kind of old school ideas about wealth, right? So they've got the Gucci belt. (laughs) They're in the bath taking pictures of themselves and, you know, at a Shangri-La hotel somewhere. (laughs) And, you know, that's that's definitely not what exploring therapy is about. And, you know, we have a whole manifesto where we talk about who we are. We're warm people over cool people, right? We think that kindness is the most important thing. So it's really about character Mm -hmm. more so than just what you're achieving that people can see. So it's interesting. Lifestyle is kind of a dirty word to you. You know, I didn't realize it until you <laughs> asked me that, but I think it's about the heart behind it, you know? Okay, cool. So you're a therapist and therapy is one of those definitely undisrupted spaces. I don't care if there's Talkspace or any other number of those startups, which I've researched for our clients in the past, They're not really disrupting anything. Therapy is still (laughs) therapy. They're just creating little marketplaces for them. Yeah. But you are creating a social media brand around being a bona fide therapist. And here's how I would describe your brand. Just if you, if just on Instagram, let's say Mm -hmm. 
you go super deep sometimes. And then there's a lot of levity in mm-hmm. some of the things that you post as well. And then there's a lot of you in yeah. the things that you post. And it's an interesting trifecta of content. What's interesting to me is that you have a really engaged audience that really value, like I've seen, they really value what you have to say. And I don't think that the masses would have been ready for this kind of brand even 10 years ago. Something's changed. I don't think I was ready for this brand two (laughs) years ago when I started it. Yeah, you're so right. Mental health therapy has been the same for about 100 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stereotype was these old, usually white men with beards and glasses in cardigans sitting on a leather sofa going, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm," mm-hmm, mm-hmm, all day. Yes, that whole idea. And I wanted to do something a little bit different. And what I found back when I started exploring therapy in April of 2018 was I was looking for other mental health professionals and could barely find any. And it was because I think if I could speak for some of us. You were looking for them on social, you mean? Yes, on social media. So I was looking for other mental health professionals on social media and I found that there weren't very many. And my guess was that- Two years ago. You're just talking just two years ago. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very, very few. And I knew because I was looking for colleagues to create community with on Instagram and I found, I don't know, less than 10 psychologists that were on at the time that seemed to be putting any effort or energy into their social media accounts. And I think it's because a lot of us traditionally are trained to be the blank slate and to basically be a non-presence. You're, wow. you're just a white piece of paper for the client to project everything onto. And so that was what we were taught as professional. And we were basically almost shamed for bringing any of ourselves into the room. One of the topics of mental health as a professional that we learn about is self-disclosure. And basically, you're only really supposed to self-disclose when it's absolutely helpful for the client. Other than that, it's, it was very frowned upon. So social media seemed like a thing we could just never do. And I felt like we were missing this opportunity to connect with potential people in the world because we were completely silent on social media. So it's been such an interesting adventure because for me, exploring therapy was about realizing that the therapy brand was antiquated and irrelevant to a lot of people. And my first intention was I wanted to rebrand therapy. I wanted it to look fun, engaging, fresh. I wanted to demonstrate that smart people, self-aware people are interested in mental health. And I could have never expected where things would go when I look at how it is today. There are Mm -hmm. so many mental health influencers. Um, So many articles have come out in major publications that therapists are the new poets. Instagram therapists are the new poets. (laughs) Um, So it's really made mental health conversations very democratized. Now everybody's talking about mental health. And two years ago, I can tell you, it was barely talked about. Wow. Okay. So this sounds like it went from being a non-space to being a real space, not just in social, but just the idea of what therapy actually is. Mm-hmm. Did your self-perception about who you are as a therapist change in the process? 5,000%. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, because like I said, when I started, I was so scared to share personal parts about myself. And since then, I feel like I've really learned how to disclose in a way that moves a conversation with intentionality forward. And so I don't share everything. There are certain things that I personally never share. You're not going to see me talk about my personal friends very much or my family. 
you're not going to see me show the inside of my home or personal spaces in my life. And that's because I have decided that those boundaries are healthy for me. But you will see me as a human being and as a therapist who loves food, who loves travel. And because I'm a digital nomad, it's really opened me up to talk about that part of my life without it being quote unquote off brand. Right. So yeah. that people who are following along aren't going, why is she talking about this? She's a right. therapist. Right. So you're really cognizant of how the brand and the overall story that you're telling are cohesive. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And I think the one thing that is maybe a little bit unique about me compared to other therapists who might be in the social media space is I made the choice back when I started that I wanted to be in multiple conversations. So I didn't want it to just be a straight up mental health account. I wanted it to include elements of myself that fit with what I wanted to connect with people on. Yeah. So you know, one of my favorite words in my entire life is delight. And I feel like my personal mission in life is to help people delight in their own lives and to delight in themselves. And so that's why I talk about food and travel and things that most of us dream about and enjoy. Yeah. Okay. So food, travel, mm -hmm. they're the easier topics. Mental health gets a, a little bit more hairy, but let's talk about like the macro state of mental health in our culture over the last few years. So mm -hmm. I feel like social, you know, has become a really, obviously so many movements started on social. A few years back, you had things like the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street. They were very mm -hmm. empowering. They were gritty and they forced us to see things we didn't want to see, but they really, they gave hope in a lot of ways. This year felt like it was a little different. I'm interested in asking you this, both as an influencer and as a therapist. Mm -hmm. It felt like 2019 was taxing. You had the Me Too movement, which was important and empowering, but it was emotionally taxing to just constantly be confronted with the suffering of women. It's important. It's, it's, we all need to pay that debt, mm -hmm. but it's a lot. Let's not deny that it's a lot. And then you had things like outrage culture, cancel mm -hmm. culture, things that you could argue are both positive and negative. It, you know, it's the wild west right now of yes. like, this space when it comes to cultural movements. Some come and die really fast. Others have lasting impact. As a therapist, how do you feel like these narratives that were born on social really affect us as a society? Mm. Well, some of the things you talk about make me think about the idea of different types of trauma. So we can experience trauma on an individual level. We can also experience trauma on a societal level, on a cultural level. And so I think we're running into some of those things. The Me Too movement is essentially a group of people who have experienced trauma and are, who are trying to walk through that conversation and through their own healing together publicly. And so we never had that before. Yeah. You know, that didn't exist. And the other thing that I've noticed is that Social media has given people the opportunity to react at lightning speed. So we're more reactive than ever before. And that is in some ways really beautiful. And in some ways it could be really unhealthy. Yeah. So let me give you an example. So when we look at reactivity, one of the things to think about from a neurological perspective is that people are in their amygdala. So they're in the fear center of their brain, which is designed to help them survive, right? So that's why when people are afraid or reactive or when they're anxious, they're not thinking about things like, 
hmm, what do I want for dinner on Tuesday, yeah. right? They're thinking about how can I protect myself? And their body is going through all these physiological reactions in response to that, right? So their body's essentially preparing them for fight or flight. And that's what we're running into with the reactivity we see on social media is that people are in that fear space. And the problem with that is that when people are in their amygdala, so when they're in fight or flight, they're not in their frontal lobes. And the frontal lobes are the place in our brain where we are able to have executive functioning, reasoning, you know, the parts of ourselves that when we think about like, who am I at my very best, that all exists in our frontal lobes. It's the most mature part of our brain, whereas the amygdala is in our reptilian brain, just oriented around, you know, eat, sleep, sex, survive, right? And so I think that we are in some ways selling ourselves short because we don't have as many opportunities to just sit and think about things and come from a more rational place. It makes sense now that things like Heige and ASMR mm -hmm. and even like a lot of people don't know this, but after 9-11, the Food Network had to completely rethink all of their programming because people started watching the Food Network like crazy because they were looking for comfort. Self-soothing. Yes, self-soothing. So all mm -hmm. these self-soothing phenomena, mm -hmm. again, born on social, are... I mean, I don't think it'd be too far-fetched to say that their reaction to this environment that you're describing, right? Mm -hmm. So what's interesting to me about that is a lot of self-soothing are sensory experiences. So it's the ASMR is all about, you know, hearing and food, all about taste. They're real experiences, whereas we live in a very unreal world so much of the time, right? And I find that it's because we're probably craving more of that realness because we have so little of it in the real world. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and I just connected this thought right now, is that when you think about mindfulness, mindfulness is also very focused on the experiencing of the present through senses. So mindfulness is something that has exploded as well with, you know, Calm and Headspace and all these apps that have skyrocketed. Everyone is obsessed with mindfulness. Why is that? I think it's because these things help us move out of our amygdala into our frontal lobes when we are present, when we're connected to our senses, when we're grounded. And so maybe people were gravitating towards those things and they didn't even realize why. But now we know it's because we're trying to move back into the frontal lobes and heal ourselves out of that survival space in our amygdala. Yeah, absolutely. So this is interesting then. Would you say that this environment that we're all digitally swimming in has affected the way you engage with people as an influencer? Oh my gosh, in so many ways. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one is I'm having more conversations with people than ever before. I think we used to have in, in wellness, at least, and in medicine, we had a model of the doctor as expert and authority. And, and I mean, think about it. Like when we were growing up, did you ever think about picking a doctor that you connected with personally? No, you went to the doctor that you were supposed to go to, whoever you got assigned, because they were a doctor and they were supposed to know what they were, know what they were doing. Now, I think people are changing and they see that they want to relate to their medical professionals and their mental health professionals. They want to feel like you're a real person they can connect to. And, you know, I feel like part of that, if I can interrupt, yeah. is because we've lost some trust in the Western medical system. That's why, I mean, I've written about this. That's why things like Goop have mm -hmm. room to breathe because 
a whole class of people, notably females, mm -hmm. felt like they weren't listened to and they weren't. So they moved. They're open to pseudoscience now because they're oh looking gosh, for empathy yeah. in medicine. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is empathy in medicine with your own brand as well. You know, checking, I check Yelp reviews to see what a doctor's bedside manner is, mm -hmm. is like before I choose somebody. Yes. It's not enough to just see who your medical or your insurance provider covers anymore. Exactly. So it's moving away from the professional as expert and authority to the medical or mental health professional as guide yeah. and friend and person that's sharing the road with you. And it's really rewarding, right? Because I think from the professional side, people that gravitate toward me really know who I am and they kind of come in, you know, by the time they've asked for therapy, they already know me and yeah. they know how I work. And I think from the client side, you really get a sense of who you get to work with and, and it feels familiar and safe. That's, that's actually super interesting. Okay. Um, you, you talked about trust. So you're right. People are at an all time low with trust with medical professionals. And I'm actually part of a new group and it's called the Association for Healthcare and Social Media. So I'm on the advisory council of this group of doctors and mental health professionals that has realized that doctors really need to close the gap. And so they are all on social media. I mean, we're talking about, you know, dermatologists that have TikTok accounts and wow. they're telling you all about your skin and you're learning facts about that. I saw a gynecologist talking about education related to the herpes virus on TikTok with thousands of views, hundreds of thousands of views. And so I think it's really great that medical professionals are realizing that they need to gain back the trust of people yeah. because they're losing ground. And so AHSM is trying to figure out ways to create guidelines for medical professionals so that we can really gain that trust back. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's this issue on, of trust on one side. And, and I love what you're describing here. I, we've absolutely seen it in our own research from a consumer side of things where the doctor is no longer the expert. They're really more of the guide mm -hmm. or what people really want to feel, at least that we've seen in, let's say, like more like um, physical medicine. So not not therapy, but the fact that the user wants to feel like they are the expert and they are employing a doctor to help them kind of discover their own path towards health. Mm -hmm. A lot of that also, by the way, is a change in definition in health altogether. Another thing that we've seen in our work is that health used to mean getting from negative one to zero, getting back to a baseline. Mm -hmm. Now people want to go from zero to positive one. Yes. Health is not about feeling better. It's about feeling your potential. It's about unlocking something superhuman inside of yourself. Yeah. The way I describe it is moving from survive to thrive. Yes, exactly. There's another side to all of this where, okay, if we as individuals are the experts, we're kind of, I, I feel like, especially in female categories, we're reclaiming things that were taken from us. So body positivity, mm -hmm. acne positivity, even mental illness. It's about clawing back these territories that we were kind of forced to give up mm -hmm. where we were defined instead of defining it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like social media had a hand in making mental health in these kinds of trends an acceptable topic or did it just make it popular? Like, did it make, popularize it? Like, was it the right time for it to blow up? Or do you think that social actually was the vehicle that we needed in order for it to become a larger conversation? I think it was kind of that magical timing of things. I think our community really needed the conversation and then social media helped boost it. But I certainly think that it's more than just a fad or a passing trend. Mm -hmm. One of the things that never happened before, but happens all the time now because of social media, is someone will share a meme about having anxiety. 
And I think that is so mind blowing because, you know, that would never happen in passing conversation the way that it does now. Now it's so common and it makes sense because most people um, at some point in their lives will experience anxiety, sometimes debilitating. And so I love meme culture because it's given people the opportunity to use humor as a way to destigmatize mental health conversations. I think that's just one example of many, but really you're seeing people self-disclose more about their own struggles. They feel permission to be vulnerable because they see that there's a community that exists that is willing to hold them and support them in that space. Right. So I think if you like summarized everything that we've discussed here so far, it feels like there's a movement towards empathy. If I had to label it, that's what I would say, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Is, Is that how you would describe this? I definitely think that empathy has become ingrained into the conversation. And in my field, I see it a lot, obviously, because we're talking a lot about feelings and giving people permission to have feelings. But what I see with brands is that brands are really linking themselves to feelings for people. One of my favorite brands that I think is connected to empathy as part of the conversation is Bando. And I think it has a lot to do with one of the leaders in the company, Jen Gotch. Jen Gotch is this incredible woman who is a force of nature. But one of the things I most appreciate about her is that she speaks openly about struggling with mental illness. And if you look through her posts, she will go into long descriptions of how she's suffering from depression and from anxiety. And she is so real. And so I love that you have a brand that is about helping people be their best. And it's when you look at it, it's very bright, colorful, sunny, cheerful, and then you have this leader who is also very open about kind of her shadow side, her, her the dark stuff in her life, too. Um, I think people really relate to that and it, it connects with them on an emotional level. The other thing I've noticed is the art of the apology when it comes to brands. I pay a lot more attention to brands when they mess up. And I think we have less tolerance for brands that don't know how to say sorry well. I, I sure do. So when a brand messes up, I actually think that's normal. I think they're going to have times where they miss the mark or they have an ad that's just, you know, it, it falls flat. But the way that they apologize to me matters a lot because it communicates whether they care about me or whether, you know, they don't care. That's interesting. Actually, I, a while ago, and I'm going to include this in the show notes and everything we discussed with you and our, our previous interview with they're, they're going to be in the show notes for people who are listening. But um, there was a great hidden brain episode where they talk about the proper way to apologize just because there's been such a rash of apologies because celebrities and brands are screwing up left and right. But so many of these public figures, the mistake they make with these apologies that we subconsciously pick up on is They're the people who apologize by talking about how sorry they are about what happened to them because they screwed up. Then there are the people who start an apology by acknowledging how much they hurt you Mm -hmm. by screwing up. Mm -hmm. I'd say if I had to figure out like the balance, I think brands are doing a little bit better than celebrities when it comes to like apologizing the right way. But there is an uh, an art to the apology. Mm -hmm. There is a right way to do it that shows true remorse and a true commitment to changing your behavior in the future. Then there's like the whole other side of things where brands make it part of their brand where they don't give an F what <laughs> what you think. Like who are you talking about? Oh gosh. There's a there's a small brand here in LA. My friend Nguyen Tran, he has a um, food brand 
and he had a restaurant called Starry Kitchen. And he kind of made a joke when people would write bad Yelp reviews, he would get really sassy with them in the comments. And it kind of brought him more attention because he would just not take their crap and kind of, I think people know Yelp reviewers have like, it's a double-edged sword because I love Yelp reviews and I love to read them. But also Yelp reviewers can seem a little bit finicky sometimes. Like I don't like the font on the menu. Especially when it comes to food. And in fact, especially when it comes to international cuisines, Mm -hmm. another article I'm going to link to here, I think it was on Eater about how Americans hold foreign food places to a very different standard. To call Mm. something authentic is they... It's a different standard they hold them to, and it's uh, created a lot of problems in the Yelp sphere for how these people, like like your friend who's the founder, mm-hmm. present their cuisines to the public. I'm going to link to that, too, but That's it's so interesting, interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I just really admired him because he was being real in himself. and you Authentic? Know, yes, authentic. If we're forced to use the word again, yeah, <laughs> authentic. Okay. <laughs> so to bring it back to empathy, if I talk about the snowflake generation, what does that make you think? I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, I think that I, I love how culture has become so inclusive and accepting. And I think there's so much beauty in that. The fact that people ask what your pronouns are and that's becoming a part of how we communicate, I think is very powerful because it says, hey, if I can make you more comfortable, I want to do that because it's kind. When I was in grad school 10 years ago, we didn't even really we did not even really talk about pronouns. So culture has shifted a lot. And I think it is shifting in many ways toward kindness. When I think about the snowflake generation, it's this idea that people are offended at everything. And I have strong feelings about that because while I totally respect if someone hates the president or is really offended at something that someone said, what I've noticed is that we've lost this appreciation for the process. So we have lost respect for another individual's process. In other words, instead of me giving you the space for you to take your thoughts and opinions from A to Z, I now just expect you to be where I am. And I actually think that's disrespectful to our humanity. Now, don't get me wrong. Like if someone has opinions that are racist and homophobic, I want them to change their mind. But I think as a therapist, one of the things I value is meeting people where they're at. And I think sometimes the snowflake culture misses out on that because there's this expectation that you should just instantaneously believe what I believe. I agree. I think a lot of these phrases like the snowflake generation are really misnomers and they hide the fact that there's so much more going on that we don't understand. And I heard two things when you were describing that. One, you know, it's kind of mischaracterizing the fact that, you know, in our quest to show kindness and respect other people it seems like a like hyper defensiveness Mm -hmm. and then the other thing that you mentioned is that it's such a shorthand it begs the question like do we give people space to actually go through this process that you describe which is so so important to us Mm -hmm. something else i wanted to ask you was what do you think the role of the influencer will be in the future and this is a big one and the reason i ask you this is because something came up in my feed a while ago that i just Ooh, I, I haven't been able to get out of my head and I've been wanting to talk to the right person about it. So Gabor Mate, and I hope I'm saying his name right. He's a, an addiction expert. He's an author. He's a speaker. He has incredible videos online where he's given interviews about a world of different things. But he had an opinion about our children or the first generation that's growing up. And their role models are not 
older people. Their mm-hmm. role models are their peers. It's these other young kids on social. And other young kids on social are not emotionally developed. Wow. They are, right? It's huge, right? It's like a huge mind bomb. I just thought of, also, you just made me think of OK Boomer. <laughs> Right. Like that, to sum that up, okay, boomer. They don't trust the boomers anymore. They want to look to their peers. Oh, you're so right. You are so right. And, and that's what it is. But the people that they're looking up to are not fully developed people yet. And they're idolizing them. And this is a huge experiment. Like, can you grow up to be a healthy, well-adjusted individual if your role models are not healthy, well-adjusted individuals just because they're still kids? Like, what do you think about that? My sense is that the influence of the future, that it may actually bounce back. One of the things I'm seeing in mental health is that people are actually really drawn to accounts that show maturity and a journey in the therapist. One of my favorite accounts is called Notes from Your Therapist. And they are a series of handwritten notes from a therapist that is probably a 40 or 50 something, if not a little bit older. And they are some of the most beautiful empathic, thoughtful reflections as if she's writing to her clients. And it's a beautiful account if you haven't seen it. But she's a demonstration of an older therapist with maturity and experience, yet her followers are not all her age. There's a lot of younger folks that I think are drawn to that wisdom. So yeah, I think it's bouncing back. So speaking of authenticity, we know that's important. What advice, I I feel like I really just have to ask this because it's important. You've given so much great insight and advice, but if I asked you to actually articulate advice that you would give to others who are building their own brands on social, what would be your top tips? A lot of people building brands on social are DIYers, and that's really who I speak to. And so I think one of the most important things that you can do is get educated about brand on the front end. One of my favorite books is Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller, which helped me really understand some concepts about brand. And so I would say take time on the front end to educate yourself and be really thoughtful about your elements. So, you know, understand why you might pick certain colors and understand what tone you want to use when you speak to your audience. I think that I have a document that's probably 45 to 50 pages of all the different things I pulled that I connected with and resonated with when I was creating the Exploring Therapy brand. And obviously we titrated it down to the essential elements, but that really helped me understand what I was doing and who I was speaking to. I think that's really important. Okay, what you're describing here is something we've talked about our process. And I think mm-hmm. in our first episode where so much of brand strategy is just going super wide mm-hmm. and then finding ways to come back and get very narrow once you can see what your whole world looks like. And that's what you're yes. describing here. Yes, absolutely. And then to that point, I think sometimes we're so narrow, you know, and using like a visual, visual example, it's like, I can only use these three fonts <laughs> and that's it. And then we forget to leave room to grow. And I think one of the things I've learned in my own brand, at least, is that you're actually not always benefiting from saying staying so rigid that actually you have to build a little bit of room for pivoting in your brand because things are moving so fast. And so you're taking your clients, your audience on a ride, you can either do that in um, a way where it literally never changes. You can do it in a way where you're taking sharp left turns and it's very bumpy, or you can do it where you're taking them on a ride. And, you know, sometimes you're taking a curve and a turn here and there. Certainly in the mental health field, there've been so many curveballs, And so, you know, I'm grateful that I'm the only one making decisions and I can kind of shift what people might connect with instead of just staying rote and staying in the routine of just doing what I'm doing because it's my brand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, if you build a rich brand, your users are going to give you the permission to make those turns. Mm. When you don't put the work in, it's it's just people aren't going to get it when you make those pivots. I love the way you said that. <laughs> okay, cool. So 
This was a very full, rich, enlightening conversation. I like to end these interviews with something personal. At the end of our episode, whoever the last person is that we're talking to, I'm going to ask you a personal question. I already know the answer to this, and I'm very excited and honored that you're going to share this with us. But tell us the story of how you came to become a therapist and how you came to decide that you were going to turn your practice into something like exploring therapy. When I decided to become a therapist, it was kind of out of innocent reasons, I suppose. Like I just loved people and I'd always loved having coffee conversations with folks. And when I realized I could get paid to do that, I was like, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. And as I've grown, one of the experiences I've had in my life that has impacted me the most in terms of why I do what I do is the experience of loss. So in 2009, I lost my brother. I was already a mental health professional at the time. So there was added complexity to the experience. But it, it was September of 2009, and he ended his life. And it was one of the most tragic, horrifying, difficult, raw, unexpected things I could have ever experienced in my life. And, you know, I experienced all the things you can possibly imagine, you know, not just deep grief, but also the shock of it all and the losing my grounding and not knowing where to go. And so what exploring therapy has become for me is this conversation about helping people to delight in their lives, to have lives that are more healthy, is really about never wanting a person to ever lose sight of their own value and their own worth and to never lose sight of the beauty of this gift of life that they have. So I think that if I can help one person to find and reconnect with the value in their own life, that will be meaningful to me. That will be my mission happening. But I just never want someone to lose someone in their lives they care about again for things that can be avoided. And so if I can help make mental health more accessible, if people can openly share about their struggles with suicidal thoughts, if we can create a space for this conversation, then I feel like it's so worth it. You know, yeah. all the work to create this is worth it to me. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it, Therese. Thank you.